0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: Earlier this week, video emerged of uh, uh, police tasering a suspect wanted for assault. As the video was filmed, police threatened to seize the man's phone. Uh, Are we allowed to film cops in action? What happens? You know, I remember when there was a a situation in Hamilton where um, there was somebody that was being taken down by two police officers. And a citizen, like, I don't know if you've ever seen a police takedown. Most people don't, but it ain't a pretty sight. And it's not a pretty sight because, well, they've had to result to that sort of behavior. They've had to result to that sort of ta- uh, tactic to apprehend a person. And, you know, none of us are rarely do we see that sort of thing. But when uh, the police officer says it's time to go, it's time to go. And it's, it's, it's a fight you're not going to win. And, uh, and, and that's why they have the power to do the things that they do. But you might remember in Hamilton, and I believe it was Bernie Morelli's son who uh, was, as he was taking a person down, and a person was very upset, he was very much explaining what he was doing and why he was doing it. And it was a great video that was put on YouTube and went viral of uh, how this cop conducted himself perfectly in, uh, while trying to do his work uh, in the line of duty, on the line of duty, uh, while somebody was very much questioning and recording what they were doing. And it turned out, instead of incriminating the police, it was a a great example of how they do the job, in this case, perfectly. So, uh... There's been lots of chatter at late, especially now with uh, the idea that police uh, are talking about wearing um, uh, lapel cams and this sort of thing uh, about video and what you can and cannot video or record when you're in the presence of police. To talk more about all of this, Dave McCormick is with us, former superintendent for uh, Toronto Police Services, executive vice president of Business Development Investigative Solutions Network, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Dave. How are you doing today?
2: I'm well, Scott. Thank you. How are you?
1: Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. First of all, let's go to this video. Uh, what can a citizen record? What can not a citizen record?
2: Well, out in the public domain, a citizen can record anything that he or she wishes. If they see something going on involving the police, they certainly have the right to to take video of that. Uh, there's no expectation of privacy in the, in the public domain for anyone, including the police.
1: So, in this situation, how was how it handled? Was it handled correctly? What do police do when they know they're being filmed, because I recorded, because, man, that's got to happen all the time now, I'm
2: guessing. Well, it does happen all the time now. It's very prevalent. It's commonplace. And the police know that anybody who is filming film them when they're out there uh, doing their job has the right to do so, and they should not be asking those people to stop or to do anything unless those people are actually obstructing the police officer's ability to do his or her job. If they're back far enough and they're simply videotaping, the police officer should do nothing except perform their duties in the professional manner that they should be doing every day, whether they're being videotaped or not. So the only problem would be
1: if somebody gets too close and gets in the way of what is going on.
2: Yeah, that's correct. If they if they are obstructing the officer in his or her duties, then that could constitute a criminal offense. But if they're not obstructing in any way, they have the right to videotape things that are happening in the public domain, regardless of whether it's police officers or not.
1: I'm still guessing that even in this day and age, uh, for most people, it's pretty shocking to watch a police takedown.
2: It is because they happen very quick. They are quite spontaneous, especially to the pers- uh, perspective of the person who's just come upon it and the the common uh, practice is now for people to whip out their cell phones and to videotape each and everything they see out there rather than maybe calling 911 to get assistance for the officers or whomever in those situations that we seem to have a lot of people standing by just shooting video because they can't wait to upload the next big thing.
1: You know, you bring up a valid point, uh, you, you know, and I can think of a situation that recently happened uh, on a transit bus where uh, somebody was filming an altercation. And, and you, you have to wonder why people, you know, I, I guess I can understand the instinct now of the generation to, to, to just want to record everything. But it seems to have gotten in the way of us actually doing something. And again, I'm sure you guys don't suggest that we get involved. But as you mentioned, you, you certainly can call. You got the device.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think you nailed it, Scott. It is a generational thing. Uh, you know, back in, in the days, as they say, uh, people jumped in and they helped, whether it was police officers or it wasn't police officers. And there is actually a duty if a police officer directs you to assist him or her, there's a duty in the criminal code to do so. But it, it um, floors me day in and day out when I watch just regular videos not involving something like this. And you know, I, I think, why is this person videoing this instead of helping the situation, whether it's you know, pulling a dog out of a flowing river or whatever the case may be? And that may not be the best example because that can lead to the person being sure. injured. But I, it, it floors me when I see things like And I say, why are you not getting involved instead of just holding up your cell phone?
1: So how do officers react? Uh, Again, they, you know, they know they're they're consistently being recorded. And again, they're doing a job and and 99.99% of them are doing it exactly the way they're supposed to do the job. Does it change the way they do things now knowing that they are always being recorded? Or is it great in the sense that it keeps everything by the book?
2: I think it's great in the sense that it keeps everything by the book and, and keep in mind, Scott, that the police are doing a lot of the recording as well. Yeah. I can tell you that every every frontline police car in Toronto is equipped with with uh, a dash cam, which is recording everything that's going on. Toronto piloted the uh, lapel cameras, um, for lack of a better name, uh, which captured all of the interactions between the, the police and the public. So the police are videotaping almost as much as the public is. It ought not to change the way that they go out there and they do their duties and they interact with the public, which always should be in a, in a professional uh, manner each and every time. It's just
1: now that a police officer's job is there on, uh, online for everybody to
2: see exactly what happens now. Yeah, police officers' job, uh, transit operators' job. Many, many people's jobs are being filmed. Uh, It's not just the police. It should be business as usual. As long as you're conducting your business in the way that you should, you have nothing to fear.
1: Now, considering that cameras like this have obviously been around for a while, it's nothing new to police officers, are there training on how to handle people when all of a sudden something like this happens? What, What went wrong
2: here? Well, I think what went wrong here was that the uh, officers that were involved, or at least one officer that was involved, gave a direction to the other officers to uh, move the person with the camera away. And from the footage that I've seen, the person with the camera was not very close to the actual incident that was taking place on the street. Uh, I don't see how that person could have been interfering or obstructing with the the lawful uh, duties of the police officers at that point in time. Uh, He ought to have just carried on with the arrest and did what was necessary to ensure that they took that person into custody in a safe fashion uh, for the officers for the person and for the public just let let the fellow videotape as he was videotaping
1: what uh, what do you think will happen or will there be any sort of suggestion to these officers after this situation
2: well, I think there will be, absolutely, and I think the Chief has come out and talked about uh, a retraining, and I think the, uh, the Director of Corporate Communications has mentioned that officers already have been told that they people are allowed to videotape them in the course of their duties as long as they're not obstructing. I'm sure that reminder will go out once again. Uh, it's been said in the media, I'm sure it will be said behind... Uh, closed doors in the police stations to remind all of the officers exactly what the public are allowed to do and how they should react when they find themselves faced with those situations.
1: At the end of the day, uh, Dave, is this a good thing? I mean, is it, is, is it worth having everything that we do videotaped again, just so like it's, it, just, it protects uh, the officers as much as it does the public?
2: Yep. I think it is, absolutely. I mean, studies have shown that when police officers are wearing lapel pin cameras, Uh, the instances of public complaints against those officers goes down. So it puts the public on their best behavior, and it puts the officers on their best behavior. And uh, if we lived in a utopian society, everybody would be on their best behavior all of the time. But we know that we're not, and we all have bad days. And police forces hire from the general public, so you hire all of the frailties that come with that. But I think it is a great way to ensure that everybody is interacting in a respectful, courteous, and professional manner. It protects the police as much as it protects the citizens.
1: Where are we with the lapel cam thing, and is it just a matter of time for that?
2: I think it's just a matter of time for that. I think as technology progresses and budgets allow, I think you'll see police forces, for the most part, having lapel cams uh, on all of the officers that are out there on the front lines. Uh,
1: is the is the biggest cost still maintaining this in the sense of data and storage and, and keeping of all the notes and, and, and what is needed? Because now you've got all of this information.
2: Yeah, that's my understanding that the storage of the data is the biggest cost factor at this point in time.
1: Dave McCormick has been with us, a former superintendent, Toronto Police Services, executive vice president of Business Development, Investigative Solutions Network, Inc. Dave, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
2: My pleasure, Scott. You take care. You're
0: listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right,
1: there's. uh, I know that Michael Tobe and I probably watched this interview last night. Uh, I'm not sure how many other people did, and you know what? I even recorded it. I even recorded it, so I know, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? And then watched it later in the evening. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it was uh, fascinating. And uh, one solid hour of uh, Donald Trump on ABC News uh, from the White House. And I still find it kind of odd seeing him in the Oval Office. I don't know. I just... uh I'm waiting to hear a theme song whenever I see that. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, a columnist and a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He's on the air with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today?
3: I'm good, Scott. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, how do you, what's your reaction when you see the, a shot of Donald Trump in the Oval Office? Doesn't it feel kind of odd? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it still does.
3: I, I don't think as much as it did a week ago. Because, you know, time heals all wounds, as they say, and eventually you get used to these things. But but in all seriousness, no. I mean, I think that for a lot of people, they still sort of perceive Donald Trump as being one type of way, either that being a businessman, a reality TV star, or something of that nature, something with glitz and glamour. I still don't think a lot of them realize that right now he is one of the most if not the most important political leader in the world and he will over time become become an elder statesman in politics i think it's still very fresh in people's minds that he is president but as time goes along and more executive orders and legislation goes through, they'll know he's president.
1: Uh, they seem to focus, uh, certainly on the latter part of the interview last night, about his, um, um, uh, I, I guess his, um, he, he seems to be obsessed with the, the, the size of the crowd at the inauguration. Uh, yeah. Let's listen to that portion of the, uh, of the uh, show. I am curious about the first full day here at the White House, choosing to send the press secretary out into the briefing room, summoning reporters to talk about the inaugural crowd size. Does that send a message to the American people that that's that's more important than some of the very pressing issues?
0: Part of my whole victory was that the men and women of this country who have been forgotten will never be forgotten again. Part of that is when they try and demean me unfairly, because we had a massive crowd of people. We, We had a crowd, I looked over that sea of people And I said to myself, wow. And I've seen crowds before, big, big crowds. That was some crowd. When I looked at the numbers that happened to come in from all of the various sources, we had the biggest audience in the history of inaugural speeches. I said the men and women that I was talking to, who came out and voted, will never be forgotten again. Therefore, I won't allow you or other people like you to demean that crowd and to demean the people that came to Washington, D.C. from faraway places because mm-hmm. they like me, but more importantly,
1: so is he obsessed with this or is ABC making too much of it to point out a weakness?
0: Well, it's
3: kind of two pronged on that. I mean, David Muir, the ABC News correspondent who actually did the interview had every right to ask about it because, unfortunately, the Trump administration put themselves in that position by, as as it was stated in the interview, sending out the press secretary, Sean Spicer, to talk about the size of the crowd at the inauguration. And this went on for days, Scott. Days. This is a, a thing that should have gone on. I don't know. If he was really that frustrated by maybe a half hour, an hour, a couple hours at best, the problem here is that unfortunately donald trump is thin-skinned and because of that He can't handle criticism the way, say, an experienced politician could. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of politicians from the last president, Barack Obama, all the way to, well, we'll give it to the second president, John Adams, they all suffered some sort of criticism from rivals, family, associates, neighbors, whatever, based on the decisions that they made. But they were able to sort of wade through it swat, you know, sort of swatted away and move forward, because as time goes along and you stand in front of a crowd and you take a lot of criticism, you can handle it. Donald Trump has certainly been criticized most of his life, but it doesn't appear that he really can handle it. And as U.S. president, he really can't handle it whatsoever if he has to engage in these sorts of things. There is so much legislation that has come out this week, and I'm sure we'll talk about it from, you know, TPP being abandoned to reforming NAFTA, defunding abortion abroad, you know, the building the wall with Mexico. There's so much to deal with this week that the fact that he spent so much time worrying about the crowd that he said wow about, well, of course he said wow. Every president who stood before this at an inauguration would have said in his own way, this is incredible, this is lovely, or wow. Wow. Naturally, because it's the biggest crowd you will probably ever face as the leader or as the president of the United States. But really, to waste all this time about the numbers... I think that 250,000, the number that came out initially, was wrong. I think that to say it was the largest crowd ever was obviously wrong. It was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 to 900,000, the number of websites have said that now. And based on pictures, it's probably accurate. There were lots of people there, Donald Trump. You don't have to worry. We don't need an exact head count to move on.
1: And you can certainly see how the election of the first black president would be a huge event. Of course. I mean, y- you're be. probably not going to top that in. in, in Unless, well, until the first well, woman is elected. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That's right. Of course, uh,
3: Obama hits his inauguration. That would be the first one. hit somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.8 million people. Yeah. But as you said, and you're quite right, it was an important historic moment. It really was. Sure, Donald Trump's moment was obviously a part of history, but it didn't mean the same thing overall. An older white male, even if he had... No political experience, no military experience, which makes them obviously very unique, doesn't mesh the same way as the first African-American president does. It just can't. Even Obama's second inauguration hit... Just about a million, which means that obviously there were still a lot of people who wanted to go in support of him a second time. you know trump 's second inauguration will be lower than his first if he 's reelected and that 's just the way life works but i don 't think he should be disappointed by the fact that somewhere in the neighborhood, as I said, between seven hundred to nine hundred thousand people showed up that 's a good showing that 's exactly what you want to see, and it means that amongst his loyal supporters there was the enthusiasm for him standing on that important podium and making that speech. He should be content with that, but unfortunately, as we know, Donald Trump doesn't seem to be content with anything.
1: Uh, will that thin skin affect the way he governs?
3: Again, this is one, and I'm going to be honest about it, it remains to be seen. I know lots of people will go running out and say <clears throat> automatically that A equals B. If he was thin-skinned in life, he was thin-skinned on the campaign, he's going to be thin-skinned as president. Maybe that's how it will happen. The difference here, however, is as president of the United States, he's not a dictator. He doesn't lead by fiat. He has to work by consensus, which means that he has to work with different levels of Congress. Now, he may find that these uh, negotiations early on are difficult. Maybe they won't be difficult. I think that will sort of determine how he handles things. Yes, if he gets attacked publicly, my guess is that you will occasionally see things similar to what happened to Sean Spicer at his quote-unquote first press conference that second day. It will obviously bother him to some degree. But as time goes along and he will face far more criticism the next four years and he probably ever has cumulatively in his whole career he may finally sort of develop an attitude that i don't like what they're saying i'm disgusted by everything i want to lash out but maybe sometimes i gotta hold back a little bit i don't know if trump can do that but i think as time goes along He will become more used to something that clearly he can't handle in life, and maybe he will take the necessary steps to change, or, quite frankly, maybe he'll be exactly the same. Who knows?
1: Uh, You talked about all that has been done just in the first week. Uh, uh, You know, Monday it was NAFTA, Tuesday pipeline, uh, Wednesday was the wall. Uh, How long can this go on? Is this the way, and, and what happens when the novelty of all of this subsides?
3: Well, I mean, how long can go on? He directly said just before he took office, <clears throat> pardon me, that the first two to three weeks of his administration, were go- he basically you're just going to see legislation flying. There were going to be enormous amount of act- activity, enormous amount of things happening. It was going to be an exceedingly busy time. Well, so far it seems to be true. The first hundred days, obviously, Following what's happened this first week, will be very, very busy as well, and probably a lot of executive orders and legislation will be put through. Meetings will be had, meetings will be cancelled, as we recently saw with the Mexican president. Uh, A lot of things will obviously happen, so it could turn out to be the busiest hundred days, certainly in many presidencies, possibly ever. After that, you're right. What do you do for an encore? What if it becomes stale? You know, sometimes the best thing to do is to show your hand early and build from that. We saw that actually in Ontario when Premier Mike Harris's common-sense revolution, the initial principles with it, they were hammered through pretty quickly and done. So then you sort of have the question of, well, we've accomplished all that. (laughs) What do we do next? Trump may face that as well. It does happen sometimes with political leaders, with political parties and others and i think he basically will then just have to either a build on what he did or what he's going to do for the first hundred days and then try to sort of create new branches and, and delve off into other areas Or B, he may have a whole set of legislation, maybe not as impressive, maybe not as eye-catching, but still controversial and powerful in nature, that he's going to bring out after the first 100 days are over. My guess is they've plotted out some things and then as well we have to be fair about it scott the world could change things too if there's a major war that could change policies and that could change his position if something happens with one of the things that he's championing and it doesn't work out he may have to cancel it or he may have to adjust it that happens in politics too so i'm not sure that trump's agenda will ever become stale But there's no question that it will eventually hit a period of time, maybe after the first six to 12 months, say, where it's not going to be as exciting, as fresh, as new, as sparkling, whatever word you want to use, as it is right now. And then that will be the key to how his presidency moves on for the next few years.
1: Uh, How do Canadians view him? Uh, Obviously, Monday when NAFTA, everybody was very cautious. And then by Tuesday with the pipelines, it seemed like... (laughs) <laughs> that a large portion of the country was doing handstands yeah. uh is, is he friend or foe how does and, and even Mexico coming out and saying don't be uh don't be uh wooed by all of this he's going to come and attack you the way he's attacking us one day
3: right well you know in, in fact, that may actually not be true because he has really hammered away at Mexico for nearly eight for close to twenty months where he's only barely touched Canada most of the time so i don't know if that's ever necessarily going to happen, but in terms of his popular numbers um Popularity in Canada has not been measured recently for Donald Trump, so I obviously don't have any data sitting in front of me. Uh, previous data shows a very negative perception, obviously, of the U.S. President, anywhere between 70 to 80 percent in most polls that I've seen. Um, today, I would imagine that based on the fact that there are going to be some c- possible complications with NAFTA, that would obviously frighten some Canadians. On the other hand, The pipelines is something, especially, you know, the Keystone pipeline is something that many Canadians, especially in Western Canada, favor, and favor considerably. Mm -hmm. So I think that will actually work to his benefit. I think overall probably his popularity numbers have have improved to some extent. I doubt that this country, our country, sort of has a 50-50 opinion of him yet. But if Keystone is built, which he really wants it to be built, and I'm hoping that others will follow along with him, and it's a success, Surprisingly enough, as low as his popular numbers are right now in Canada, in the United States especially too, and around the world, they could increase. Again, the proof is in the pudding. If the programs he puts forward make sense and are successful, it's to his benefit, and his popular opinion obviously will rise.
1: All right, so after watching the interview on ABC last night, what are your thoughts as uh, uh, for his performance on uh, his first, I, I guess, major interview as president?
3: Yeah, I I guess we could call it the first major interview. It's interesting ABC News got it, and... um I guess I would say it. And then he hammered
1: them and said, you should watch Fox and said, you probably won't include that. So of course they did. Uh, (laughs) Your thoughts.
3: It's true. Well, he's on Sean Handy, I believe tonight. So yes, I think he popped that one in as well. Uh, The only good news is that Fox News and ABC have actually had a good relationship over the years. So probably they were not too bothered that Fox was second, but overall the interview itself, um, it was very typical Trump. He, you know, he, He's trying to—it's interesting, if you watch his mannerisms in his speech, he's really trying to slow down his speech. He's yes, not he,
1: taking, he is, certainly is sounding more presidential in that respect.
3: He is. Yeah. I think people behind the scenes, you know, maybe Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, someone has got to him and said that, look, if you're now the leader of the free world, you have to start acting like a diplomat in terms of the way you deal with the press— the way you deal with cabinet, the way you deal with caucus members, be it Republicans or Democrats, and the way you deal with people in general. That's actually a good thing because early on, you know, we saw what Donald Trump is like, and certainly on a podium, it's amazing. He can speak without notes and he can just garble on for God knows how long but it also then whenever he veers off from his page and doesn't follow the narrative it just goes wild i think they've now sort of instilled in him that he's got to start thinking about what he says and by slowing down your speech and slowing down your pace that actually helps because it gives you just that little extra second to think about whether i should head in one direction with my speech or maybe you know what i should hold back and do something, uh, something else the ABC News interview overall was perfectly fine. He covered lots of different issues, uh, including the wall, waterboarding, and various other things. Yes, yeah, some of it's going to be controversial. And yes, I think a lot of people are going to be maybe stunned by some of the things he said. But again, a lot of it was just sort of talking about his agenda and the things that he believes should have happened. He talked about the election and where he had support in certain, you know, certain states and not in others. And his concerns about the, the whole thing with voter fraud, he covered a lot of topics in that interview. It was quite wide ranging. I thought overall it was a good performance. I think that his performances in front of the cameras have be, have been become a lot better in recent months, and I think this was sort of proof of that. I think he did overall a very good job, and if he keeps handling his interviews like that, I think that it'll certainly work to his advantage. I just hope over time, as he 's getting used to this slower pace of speaking that he eventually learns to speed it up a little bit, not, you know, just a touch, Mm -hmm. so that he realizes I now have a a method or a formula that works for me, I feel more comfortable, now I can sort of roll along.
1: We'll see what happens. Did you learn anything or pick up something from him in that interview you hadn't seen before or that -hmm. that caught your eye?
3: The only thing that was different for me, I mean, a lot of it was really just, just common language and themes that I hear, with Trump um, again, I, as I said to you, the one thing I did catch is that his speech is getting slower and slower. But I think that's a good thing. I think the revelation about waterboarding was kind of interesting. It had been, as people point out, it had been mentioned before. He, like in other words, he had discussed it before, but not in any great depth. It's interesting, sort of, how that interview kind of carried it. And it also was kind of fascinating to me that he said that you know my my two major generals, General Mattis and General Kelly, will be basically his sounding board for something like that. So in other words, if Kelly and Mattis say, yeah, waterboarding is a good technique, it's worked when we've basically taken, you know, these horrible bloodthirsty terrorists and totalitarian groups and sort of just purged them to get that information that we need, and that waterboarding is an important technique in this fashion, he'll go along with it. But he also said there that, well, if they say no, it doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't work, then he won't do it. That's kind of interesting, because everyone keeps talking about how Trump wants to do everything. Basically, he is the man in charge, and yeah, there's lots of other people running around, but they must listen to me. This may be the first little tiny sign that he realizes that, yeah, I can send out Sean Spicer to any press conference I want, and he'll say what I want, you know, up until the time he resigns from the Post, which he certainly would if this kept going on and on every day. But I think he also realizes that, aside from him saying that he's the smartest guy in the room, I think privately no, he knows that he's not. Hmm. He's certainly smart when it comes to business. He's not very sharp when it comes to politics or political demeanor. He doesn't really un- have the behavior, the techniques in place to do that. So it's actually good that he's looking to his experts and Madison Kelly would be experts about a policy decision or a policy shift that would be very, very important. Maybe he'll look to them for closing uh, Gitmo or Guantanamo Bay maybe he'll look to advisors in the way he handles trade deals, the way he handles relations with other countries, including Russia. This could be a little sign that he understands that over the next four years, yeah, I'm the president, I'm in charge, blah, 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 but at the same time I realize I have to work with other people or they're not going to want to work with me. And I think maybe this interview shows the first realization at that point. But again, as I often say with you, with Donald Trump, you never know what to expect, so we'll see what happens.
1: Did, you, did he seem more humble to you this time? I mean, even when he was holding up the letter of Barack, it was almost as if you're in a classroom with your kid and they're showing you their new desk.
3: Yeah, um, a little bit. I, I think that's probably something they started working with him on when Kellyanne Conway came into the scene about two and a half months ago. I think one of the things you saw is that with other uh, aides behind him, Paul Manafort, uh, Corey Lewandowski, and others, there was kind of this rage that would often happen with him when he was on uh, the podium uh, during news conferences, and even some interviews that he had, say, with uh, Megyn Kelly, Bill O'Reilly, and others. There was just something there that just (laughs) didn't look kosher at times, and Mm -hmm. it really seemed very bad. It didn't bring a good appearance I found when Conway came in, one of the things she did is, you can't make Donald Trump humble, but you can make him a bit more humble in the way he appears in terms of, again, interviews, speeches, etc., and his public persona. So yes, to some degree that's true. It is interesting. That's the second time he's actually shown the, uh, Bar- Barack Obama's letter, which is, as most people know, is a tradition amongst presidents to always leave a final note to the incoming successor to sort of give him, you know, just a little bit of mm-hmm. guidance about what to expect, how important the post is. It's more a pep talk than anything else. A few of these letters have actually been released over the years including a couple very recently, and they're just nice notes. One would hope that Donald Trump when he leaves office does the same thing to the person who replaces him. Uh, so, yes, it's actually good that he's doing some of this stuff. Yes, he certainly wasn't uh, wild inventing when he spoke on the ABC News interview. And maybe this is a sign that he's toning down the language. He'll never be a humble man, but he can certainly be humbler. And I think that's actually a good sign.
1: Michael Tobis has been with his columnist and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day.
0: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
1: Uh, in case you haven't seen, uh, and we're asking you this on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, you can always, again, get a hold of me, tell me what your thoughts are. Uh, your thoughts on two, on Ontario's new $30,000 150 logo. Of course, uh, Canada's uh, 150th birthday. Ontario wants to get in under that umbrella. And you know, I'm thinking 30k. I don't know what a logo costs, but I, 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 you know, in the old days, maybe that's what it would be. I'm thinking if they spent 30, they perhaps should have spent 50. But then I find out after the logo police call that you know logos are very cheap now because obviously the internet and everything like that. You can apparently you can pick them up like you can print business cards. So um, you know, I, I don't know. And and is it? uh what you're looking for is it you know too young a design is it, it apparently it's designed apparently the millennials love this that's that's what it's designed for uh eric says on facebook uh, sure about the logo sure why not taxpayers have lots of money to waste on crap like this uh that's what eric says jim says a grade six class could have designed a better logo and you know we honestly did get uh Uh, someone suggests that on Twitter. They said, wouldn't this have been a great project for a university or college student? You know, have some sort of um, uh, of bursary or whatever and let them design the 150 logo. That would carry a little bit more novelty to it. Perhaps people would be uh, more supportive of it. Uh, Let's bring in a lady whose life is logos. Alyssa Freeman is with us, principal Alyssa PR. Ontario celebrating, of course, 150th anniversary with the new logo, getting some harsh feedback. Alyssa is with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today?
4: Hi, Scott. I'm fine. How are you? I'm
1: great. I'm so happy to have you here. I've got a whole list of topics of things I want to talk to you about, but we're starting with the logo. <laughs> As logos, I'm sure you've seen more logos than you can shake a stick at. That uh, true. What is your thought when it comes to this logo?
4: Well, my first thought is that I understand the intentions, but it looks, it, to me, it's very hard to read. So if I didn't know it was Ontario uh, 150, I thought maybe it was Ontario 1501 or I wasn't sure what it was. And I guess if it wasn't on a government building, I mean, it wasn't very – it was a little bit too clever by half. I once had a CEO who coined that phrase, and that's what I have to think of it as. Um, Why is that? Well, I think that they thought, well, what if we – it's almost like they started off with something. Uh, you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what it really looks like. It looks like a client-designed logo.
1: It looks so like something I, done. It looks like something done in-house.
4: Well, maybe, but here's what I think. I mean, it could have been two th- two tracks here when you look at a logo that ends up looking like that. Because I can guarantee you, Scott, that's not how it started. Hmm. So let's say they have an agency and they submitted a logo, and then they thought, well, you know what? Somebody thought inside, I can take that, I know how to work whatever program, and let me see what I can do with
1: it. Uh, oh, nice.
4: <laughs> and then they went through it and they go, Well, we would rather have this. Or the other thing happened was. You know what? Signs are so expensive, and they are. I have to tell you, they are expensive, and also to put them up is very expensive, not cheap Mm. endeavor. So maybe they decided, they thought, you know what, we really need to get something up. There's a lot of talk right now on TV. You see the participation um, ads about Ontario 150, I mean about Canada 150. Let's just get something up quickly. Let's do this in-house and spend the money on the sign and getting it up.
1: Didn't they know and that? that didn't, they know the whole, didn't they know the whole? Didn't they know the whole one hundred and fifty thing was coming? So, do you think this is a rush job?
4: Um, I think that they have been diligently planning on a number of things that they wanted to do, and perhaps they thought that putting something up as early as January, February, would have been too early. And sometimes, you know, when you work in government, what you do is you pick up the phone one day at I don't know eleven o'clock on a Tuesday, and they say we need a sign. And then you say, um, "Okay," and we need it up this week. Well, we need to get—we don't have time for that. Do something internally. And that scenario, you know, when I say this out loud, is probably the one that happened.
1: Hmm. Uh, They said somewhere I read that this appeals to the millennials. Is there anything millennial about this?
4: I don't even know. I just think that millennial is a sort of a fallback narrative these days. Yeah. Everybody wants to appeal to millennials, but, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a free concert, millennials are going to show up. Mm. So, you know, if the CBC is doing programming, every now and then we hear, oh, this is to appeal to the millennials. Is that who's watching CBC? No, not really. Yeah. But everything is done to appeal to the millennials. I don't think there's anything as if all of a sudden, about
1: it. As if all of a sudden they're supposed to hear that and then go, oh, this is our cue to listen.
4: Well, you or, or know, yeah. As, yeah and, and, and as if they're doing that. I mean, yeah. if this was something to appeal to millennials, well, is it an app? Is it going to tell you what's coming up? Is it, is it taking advantage of, you know, what's in uh, the hands uh, 24-7 of a millennial? No, it's a sign.
1: Somebody tweeted to us, too. Wouldn't it have been a cool idea if we could have farmed this out to university or colleges and their design programs and try to get them to come up with something?
4: I heard that before I came on, and you know what? That's a brilliant idea. That's exactly what the Pan Am Games did, to yeah. be quite honest. They, when they had to come up with a, um, a mascot, they invited all uh, schools in Ontario to participate with their own design. They got hundreds and hundreds of applications. They narrowed it down. And then, you know, there's a strategic thinking behind that too, Scott, that if you know a kid designed something, you're not going to say boo about it. Yeah, that's
1: a good There'll point. There'll be no
4: article in the Toronto Star saying this is Etsy-like. <laughs> They'll think, Oh, wow, that was a really super great effort by little Johnny in grade six at blah, blah, blah public school. That would have been the smart thing to do. But I am willing to bet that some phone call came down. They had to get something up, and now they're reaping the fallout of it.
1: Does Ontario need a 150 thing? Doesn't it just all fall under the Canada 150 thing?
4: You know what, I think that it does. I think that, you know, what we want to do is regionalize events so that lots of things are happening here. And I think that we saw that when Pan Am was here. One of the things that people really got around to were the free events that happened downtown. So Ontario 150 is a little bit more widespread, and I think that if you want a province to own it, then you really have to have things happening in the north of the province and the south of the province. So I think it's absolutely okay uh, to regionalize um, an important milestone in the country like
1: this,, uh, where does this go now? Is it over? It's out, so that's it. We had it. I mean, because really, it's a short term thing. It doesn't have a long shelf life, which could be one of the reasons they didn't spend a lot on it. That's another thing. Um, well, I've asked you two questions at once. So I'll save on the price. Go ahead with the first. Do you... okay, what was the first question? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question.
4: Uh, thirty thousand, let's go to the
1: second. thirty thousand too much to spend for this.
4: Well, I got to tell you realistically what? when you're looking at fabricating a sign and then you're looking at putting it up and I can't imagine there was any design fee in that or or whatever or manipulating the design so that it would work. I mean, signs like that are expensive. From my experience, you know, you can't take a $500 sign and put it up on a building.
5: Mm-hmm. So
4: a lot of it has to do with the fabrication and actually the actual hanging of the sign. Like you see it there, it's on top, it's on a building. You think somebody leans out a window and says, here, I got it? No. You know, it has to be professionally put up. Are
1: they looking at this short term so no one cares, don't want to put a lot of resources into it?
4: Well, I think they're going to have to have a little powwow if they haven't already and said, okay, we've had a misstep. Um, What is most important out of this, actually, Scott, is that you know the people running Ontario 150 don't want this misstep to um, color the narrative going forward. So people are going to think, oh, is this just some hokey thing and Ontario is going to have the hokey of the hokey when it comes to celebrating Canada 150 based on this sign fiasco. If anything, they're going to have to step up their game and be a little bit more deliberate in what their next deliverables are so that people, this will erase the memory of this first misstep.
1: Uh, Who cares? Does this matter at all? Is it a big deal? Or is well, it? Or is it with a, gov- with, a, with a government with Win, who people are constantly accusing of wasting money? Is this just add to that pile?
4: Well, you know what I think it adds to the pile, but I don't think it's a, a big thump on the pile. The problem no. with this is, is that you know what do you do? Do you take the sign down after yeah. spending thirty thousand dollars on it? No. Do you have it as a constant reminder every time you drive by that building? You think, oh, there's that sign again, and boy, is it ever ugly. <laughs> I mean, it is. It, it, it's I like that Christmas. Like, it's
1: like that Christmas tree in Montreal.
4: You know, I mean, I have to be honest, it's a little bit of a conundrum that, honestly, I don't think anybody really saw coming. And now they're going to be spending more time on it than they would think is normally reasonable. And it will hold up other plans, but it, it really does have to make them work a little bit harder on what comes next
1: uh since we're talking about uh well let's move on to trump your thoughts on his yeah
4: there's no segue between yeah no, and it's not yeah <laughs> it's
1: yeah, it's kind of a it's like running in quicksand really isn't it,
0: it, is, it
4: uh
1: is. so uh his first major appearance last night still kind of stuck on uh how big the crowd was and this sort of thing but your thoughts on i don't know whether you saw it there's probably only boring people like me that watch this sort of thing but what were your thoughts on his performance
4: I think that Trump still thinks he's in a campaign, that he's in an election. And some of the narratives that I keep hearing out of this are, can somebody tell him that he won? Yeah. And it's almost like he is looking for approval. He's looking for 360 approval, and he's never going to get that. We know that he is, um, whenever he gets together or a crowd of people get together, even if it's in a press conference situation, there are people in that room who are there, and their only job is to clap and laugh at the right places. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, I I think that, you know, and the other thing that we see is executive order after executive order after executive order. You know, whether these things all go through or not, like claiming voter fraud and using really loose definitions as to what voter fraud actually is, what he's doing from sheer optic, without even thinking, without even clicking beyond the headline, is that he is showing he is doing some work. He wants, he's very concerned right now what his first 100 days looks like.
1: And especially after he sort of made the misstep on day one with uh, having his press secretary go out and talk to everybody about the size of the crowd. I mean, on the weekend, I thought, oh, man, this is going to hell in a handbasket. Then Monday, it was uh, NAFTA. Tuesday, it was Pipeline. And Wednesday, it was The Wall. I mean, bing, bang, boom, here it comes.
4: Well, and then you've got to start to bang all those things. You've got to back all those things up. So, you know, when uh, Spicer, the secretary, you know, the press secretary, comes out and you saw the way he delivered those words. We were the biggest our nation, uh, inauguration, period. Mm-hmm. Those weren't his words. You know whose words those were. Yeah. <laughs> those were Trump's words. And he said to him, you deliver it just like that. And I don't think anybody is going to say no to Trump right now. Yeah. Nobody's going to say, you know what, maybe that's not a good idea to say it that way. And Kellyanne Conway, bless her heart, is, you know, even she's starting to crack under pressure. So I think that, you know, Trump really has to He's getting a lot of narratives out. They had a first big, you know, misstep um, about, you know, how, how big the crowds were. And everything coming out from that, Scott, is coloring all his other initiatives. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we talk about the inauguration and the comparison of photos and how it wasn't as big as crowd, a bigger crowd as everybody, you know, he said it was. And then, you know, he has a rally and now they're saying, well, look at all the people here. They are doing everything right now to prove that he is the president of you know of all of america that all of america supports him despite the fact that he was three million short on the popular vote he seems to be obsessed by that right now and i think you know even when we watched kellyanne Conway on um on sunday uh meet the press Mm -hmm. and chuck todd was he says well why would you come out with that she went right back her talking point was this You know, whenever we had those rallies, you guys, you, the media, underestimated and basically ignored the size of the support and the size of the crowd. And so you can't really talk about that because you're the ones who didn't report on it in the first place. Mm. So this whole size and the sense of being beloved and supported is something that if we're seeing this now on, what is it, day five, six, seven, I think it's going to be part of everything that he talks about
1: uh, are people figuring out his style? I mean, obviously, he nobody expects this guy to be the bull in the China shop that he did because it's very, very uh, unpresidential. But th- that's pretty much how he is. Goes in, sucks the energy out of the room, makes those that are left standing feel like they're just happy to be alive. And then that, of course, lowers expectations. And he goes in and he makes his deal. We've seen that with what he's trying with NAFTA and and, and the TPP and, and what have you and so on. Uh, even with the pipelines. He wants a new deal. Uh, After a while, do the Fords, the GMs, the Boeings, or whatever, factor all of this into part of the negotiation, and just I guess plan their attack on Donald Trump the way they would any campaign, any advertising campaign?
4: I think that right now, what you saw, even while he was president-elect, people were scared. He'd put out a tweet, they'd react. And, you know, that's very unusual when you're talking about the companies that you just mentioned, Scott. So, I think that they are going to start to figure that out. But even in Trump's own rhetoric, when he says, we're going to build a wall, and and they, the question comes, well, you said, well, taxpayers are going to be paying for this wall. Yeah, but we're going to get the money back in some way, shape, or form, or part of another deal. Yeah. Well, you are? And I think that people are going to start to recognize this. And I think that as he changes policies, and as he, and as it becomes, and as comes to affect those Americans who voted for him, I think that people are going to start to see through that. You can only, at least I would hope so. It's kind of like crying wolf. Well, he is, but you know, I think he's only doing what worked through the campaign trail, and they probably don't even see fit to, uh, to change the style at all right now. But The other thing that is most disturbing is how he is doing one-way communication to the American public and usually will not face reporters or says that they're fake news or they're whatever. You know, this is not a new concept. Harper did this for a number of years in that, you know, the reporters who were traveling as part of the press pool, they would hear nothing come out from various meetings from, um, let's say, a foreign government, and they would have to get the details from somebody else's press corps. So keeping the press uh, far away and not informing them is is something that's not new. But what does happen as a result, and you're already starting to see this, is people saying, well, if you won't tell us the truth or any facts or even let us know anything, we're just going to have to go in another direction and presume what you're talking about. Hmm. So when he shut down the Twitter handle of the National Park Service, Well, all those employees got together and they said, well, you know, we're going to make up another Twitter handle. Nobody will be able to trace it. And we are going to put things out about climate change. So by shutting it down and trying to control or uber-control the message, there are dissidents everywhere who will not put up with this and start continuing to put out messages in defiance. And they can't be caught. And they are coming up as these sort of alternative news resources versus alternative facts, but alternate news resources that are actually organically spouting the truth in the face of being controlled.
1: Uh, And, you know, when when Harper went down this road and decided he was going to put space between him and and the media and such, that played right into Trudeau's hands. I mean, that's what got him elected. He was the man of all people. He'd take a selfie with you. He wasn't afraid of the... Pr- Even what he's doing now when he wades into these scrums where people are attacking him. I mean, you know, that's, the, that's one of the draws to Trudeau uh, over Harper was, I think. So at what point does it work against
4: him? Well, it also allows you to get your message out. So what happened with Harper when he was you know, keeping the media at bay is what they try to do was do these sort of day in a life videos. Yeah. And I don't know how many people watch them. I remember I looked at one of them, and it had maybe 450 views, which is not a lot for a video (laughs) that's supposed to appeal to all Canadians. And what it would would do is it actually show Canadians from the PC point of view, oh, this is what happened on this trip, and here I am shaking hands, and look how happy I am, and look how everybody's getting along, but really didn't say anything. Hmm. And that just did not work. So he lost his relatability to the Canadian people. Uh,
1: let's talk about Win and uh, the ongoing, it appears, uh, Facebook uh, communication between Wynn and O'Leary. Why is uh, this going on? What is in this for Premier Wynn? Why is she concerned about the federal conservative leadership race?
4: I think you know there's a number of different narratives that are coming up about Premier Wynn right now, which seem to be out of left field. This is one. The other one was, as reported, was the uh, number of um, gender slurs and various other racial slurs that she has endured. And I almost can't believe that this is you know this has been probably going on for how long has she been in, been in power now? So you know this has been going on since day one. So that was a very interesting narrative that came out. And so I'm thinking, well, that's fairly awful, and that makes me feel bad, and why is this coming out now? So then you have this ongoing Facebook exchange, and again, I have to look at it as a diversionary tactic. So let's not talk about your hydro bill. Let's not talk about other things that are bugging you. Let's talk, let's change the public perspective here, and I'm going to take on Kevin O'Leary. And again, I just think it's a diversionary tactic, Scott. I really do. Yeah. Um,
1: what? Uh, you know? Uh, do you think people are? Well, obviously, people aren't going to buy into that. And and again, there's too much separation between them with federal and provincial politics and with party lines for here to to her to be even interested. Isn't this just giving more fuel for O'Leary?
4: Well, in, in very much. I mean, it, it's certainly keeping him uh, out in the front. You know, when you have a, any press announcement, you know, you've got like maybe a 24-hour burn on your news cycle before it goes away. And, you know, this is not going away about him, you know, con- you know pursuing the PC leadership uh, by her, you know, adding fuel to the fire. But you know what? Premier Wynne has always sort of aligned herself with federal politicians. You know, when Trudeau came campaigning through Ontario, who would pop up? But, and Premier Wynne would be there. Every yeah, but normally
1: office. that doesn't cross party lines.
4: No, I understand that. But I think she still likes to see herself as maybe perhaps more than she is. So by engaging in federal politics, it's A, um, I can play with the big boys, And B, you know what, let's not talk about hydro, let's talk about O'Leary for a change. So for me, it's, you know, there's nothing else that they can talk about. They're probably looking and searching every day for positive new opportunities that can um, change the agenda or change the narrative, and this is it for this week.
1: And as we've talked about before, I I think this is a bad route to go down, simply because uh, rather than cutting up the faults of your opponent or someone in a different, uh, you know, level of politics than you Why not look at why people are so interested in them, despite all of these faults, instead of the status quo? And, you know, I think people are just too smart for all of this right now.
4: I think after all these years, yes, they are. And, you know, if anybody needs to go on a listening tour right now, it's Premier Win.
0: There you go. But,
4: you know, going from city to city and town to town... Uh, it might start to wear in her after the fourth stop. But by and large, people do appreciate someone who is stand up and willing to face them and look them in the eye and answer their questions.
1: Alyssa Freeman is with us, Principal. Alyssa, PR Communications, uh, columnist, Huffington Post, Canada, P, uh, Canada.com, and PR Daily. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
5: Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.